0: Welcome back to Historical Context. Today we conclude our series on the colonies during the English Civil War. Today's episode covers the very end of the English Civil War and setting up some of the conditions uh, that the colonies were in at that time. As we have been discussing throughout the series, the king's power struggle with parliament was viewed within the northern colonies as favoring the parliamentarians, and in the southern colonies as favoring the king. By late 1647, King Charles I had practically abdicated, and the parliamentarians were controlling the country. In Maryland, the colony was mourning the loss of their first governor, Leonard Calvert, when talk of mutiny began once again. Let's have a look at the writing. The court being informed of certain mutinous speeches uttered by James Johnson about the 3rd of July, that he should say unto Richard Bennett after some discourse concerning the government now established, that he hoped within a while to see a confusion of all papistry here, and further the said James Johnson said that both he and Richard Bennett and all that came up with the late governor from Virginia were rogues. Mr. Johnson was fined 2,000 pounds tobacco by the court and subjected to 30 lashes for that little outburst. Mr. Bennett was a key witness in Mr. Johnson's trial. So, Protestantism was still a force to be reckoned with in maryland thomas green was named the second governor of the colony by leonard calvert days before calvert's death but cecil calvert who was the one that held the title lord baltimore ultimately had control over that position and he was back in england so we had to wait for him to weigh in on who to replace his brother thomas green put together a council and went before the assembly with his new government in January of 1648, but there was a surprise when someone showed up and requested access to vote since they were now a landowner as well. Let's have a look. Came Mrs. Margaret Brent and requested to have vote in the house for herself and voice also for that of the last court. It was ordered that the said Mrs. Brent was to be looked upon and received as his attorney. The governor denied that the said Mrs. Brent should have any vote in the House, and the said Mrs. Brent protested against all proceedings in this assembly. Margaret Brent may have been the first suffragist in America. First time I've seen a woman uh, demanding essentially an equal right to vote, in this case vote within the assembly, and in this case she was denied. One of Thomas Greene's first actions is to commission John Price to defend the colony against native attacks. Green authorizes Price to raise a militia of 30 to 40 men. Thomas Green also pardoned those individuals involved in the rebellion who had returned to, quote, submission to His Majesty's government. And this is a conversation that is continued from a prior episode where we talked about. Leonard Calvert being more welcoming of some of the former mutinous individuals back into the colony. So Green takes it all the way and pardons people who have shown submission to the government, uh, not necessarily pardoning everyone. The General Assembly under Green passed a couple of consequential laws. They passed a law establishing guidelines for debt collection. And I know that that would sound kind of odd for this period of time, but if you go back and look at the court proceedings in Maryland, and this existed in other colonies as well, there were lawsuits left and right in the 1640s and the court was just bogged down with petty disputes. They also passed a law forbidding the sale of firearms and ammunition to pagans, and I don't know if they were, are referring to pagans in regards to the natives. I couldn't find any necessary links between the two, but it is quite likely. Thomas Greene really didn't have time to prove himself as a worthy governor, Back in England, Cecil Calvert, being aligned with King Charles I, found himself in a tough spot with the parliamentarians taking over the entire country. The pressure was indicative in his March 1647 appeal to parliament. Let's have a look. There is an ordinance depending in this house for repealing of his patent of Maryland upon which place he hath engaged the greatest part of his fortune, that as he hath heard and supposes, it is for some accounts intended to be done by others under him there, but he hath not yet known the particulars of the charge intended to be laid against him, nor who are his accusers." Now, for those of you on the YouTube channel looking at the slides, you can tell there are misspellings everywhere. It's a very, very difficult translation. But Calvert is essentially acknowledging where it looks like the patent may be taken away, and he is saying, I'd like to know who my accusers are so that I can answer any allegations that would lead the Parliament to take away. Our patent, but clearly that's on the table now, and being aligned with King Charles I against the parliamentarians does not look good for Cecil Calvert. In what appears to be an effort to appease the parliamentarians, Calvert appoints William Stone, a Puritan, to replace Greene and become the third governor of Maryland. Stone was not foreign to the colonies, though. Stone was among one of the first groups of Puritans to settle Virginia in 1619. That was before Plymouth. But nearly 30 years later, they had found the region intolerable to their religion. Stone reached an agreement with Calvert to resettle this group within Maryland, so he comes up to be governor, and his group, who had been in Virginia for 30 years, that's a long time, comes up with him. Stone's group would relocate and found the town of Providence in 1649. You know it today as the city of Annapolis. In Massachusetts Bay, the Puritans re-elected John Winthrop as governor in May of 1648. Winthrop's now 60 years old, and uh, he receives a letter that year from New Netherland Director Stuyvesant, who we talked about just last week, committing to peace between their colonies and requesting a meeting in Connecticut with William Bradford of Plymouth, present to discuss an alliance against the natives and the Spanish. And this would make sense based on our conversation last week where the Dutch were heavily weakened, they didn't need more enemies, and they needed help against the natives. I don't know what's going on there with the Spanish, but clearly they were considered enemies as well. Winthrop, in his writing, picked up on the colony's challenges, so it wasn't that he wasn't aware of what was going on in New Netherland. He knew about it, and uh, he believed that was the reason they were seeking alliances. Winthrop returned a message that he would look forward to such a meeting, but it ended up that it wouldn't happen because William Bradford fell ill at the time. The general court in Massachusetts Bay also hanged Margaret Jones for witchcraft in 1648. So now the whole witchcraft hysteria, which we had talked about bubbling up in England and occurring in Connecticut, was now also starting to rear its head in the Massachusetts Bay. The colony had also passed additional laws to add to the Book of General Laws and Liberties. The the Book of General Laws and Liberties was passed originally a decade earlier, but over the 1640s, other laws were added. Among these were that uh, bakers should have distinct marks on each of their products, probably an accountability or branding type thing. In 1644, the colony had to deal with the rising Anabaptist movement. Anabaptists were individuals who did not believe in the baptism of infants and believed that individuals should be of an age of consent before being baptized. This was radical doctrine to the Puritans, who ordered any Anabaptist banished from the colony. And this division and this practice would lead to much bigger significant events three, four decades later. The burglary law was amended to allow for the death penalty after three convictions. At a synod in August of 1648, the colony passed the Cambridge Platform, which served as the disciplinary guidelines to church government. So the 1640s were real significant there in the Massachusetts Bay because they had established laws for the colony, and now with the Cambridge platform, they had disciplinary guidelines in place for church government. So the civil society, the laws and the rules were really in place in Massachusetts Bay, and with their allies in control in Parliament, and we talked about this in a previous episode, Parliament acknowledging that they wouldn't meddle with the affairs of Massachusetts Bay, things seem pretty content with them going into the new decade. In Virginia, there's not much primary uh, information that exists for this time period, late 1640s, early 1650s. But Wilcom Washburn, a historian who wrote a book on Virginia during the time of Charles I and during the time of Oliver Cromwell uh, notes that in the late 1640s, explosive growth in the colony forced it to grow towards the Potomac River, and they made that decision in 1648. This was equally interesting considering the fact that Governor Berkeley had taken extraordinary steps to rein in the frontier just the year prior, and if you'll recall, there was a massacre in Virginia in 1644, again in the more frontier parts of the colony, Governor Berkeley, as I just said, opposed to that expansion, but so many people were coming in by 1648, they had to move. Washburn hints in his writing that some of the growth was caused by civil strife in England. Therefore, we can conclude that it was likely royalists leaving the country for the friendlier confines of Virginia. And this would make sense because it happened in Massachusetts two decades prior. Remember from our podcast in 1630, Massachusetts Bay saw this huge growth of people. Puritans coming over because of the persecution of Charles I. It would only make sense that two decades later when the Puritans were controlling England that the royalists would come over and Virginia was the colony that was seen most favorably to the royal cause. So they would go to Virginia. So Virginia seeks to benefit in terms of population growth from the events occurring in England and that civil strife in 1648 that Washburn is referring to has some very particular events or underpinnings that occurred in 1648 actually in late 1647 Charles I pulled back from his commitments to parliament so he kind of reneged on his deal and was looking to gain more power The matter was further complicated when Scotland, Ireland, and Wales all invaded England on behalf of King Charles. This is actually known now as the Second English Civil War, but I consider it still a part of that because nothing was really settled. They had just stopped fighting for a period of time. Each of the opposing armies invading England were disorganized. They were uncoordinated, so they didn't come in all at once, and as a result, they were defeated by the parliamentarians, and they had had enough of King Charles I. He was tried for treason, convicted, and executed in January of 1649. The parliament ended the monarchy in England and established the Commonwealth of England, which would function as a republic. So, basically a new nation, if you will. Even though it was still England, the whole government structure changed. The Commonwealth of England was formed. In July 1649, the Council of State in England ordered letters written to the English plantations abroad, informing them of the change in government, and requiring them to continue their obedience. While we could imagine how John Winthrop would have reacted in Boston, we will never know, as he died in March of 1649 at the age of 61. John Endicott, who we've been very familiar with throughout this podcast, he actually served as the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay. John Endicott would succeed John Winthrop as governor. In Virginia, the change spelled the beginning of some pretty big problems for Governor Berkeley. In 1648, Berkeley banished a Puritan minister from the colony. The first order of the Council of State directed at Governor Berkeley was an inquiry as to why that happened. Virginia would now be the first to fall under the investigative eye of the new English Protectorate. And the English Protectorate and its relationship with the colonies is going to be the topic of our next series. And we will start that next time on historical context.